But we're going to be looking at passage, uh, John 6, chapter, it's uh, verses 41 through 71. So 30 verses. So let's see, let's see how we can get through this. There's a company uh, that advertises these dolls. I don't know if you've seen these dolls. Maybe you have one of these dolls at your house. This is the Jesus Cuddly doll. It's huggable, it's washable, it's lovable, and it talks to you. It's a talking Jesus plush doll. This doll can be yours for $15.95, that's all. You have your own personal Jesus, and he can tell you things that you like to hear. He sports fuzzy dreadlocks and a satiny beard. This talking Jesus doll is said to recite actual scripture verses in order to introduce children of all ages to the wisdom and teaching of the Bible. Commenting on the product, Sojourner's Magazine says this, When you squeeze his little red heart, sayings come out of, come out of him, they include these, I love you. I have an exciting plan for your life. Your life matters to me. So if you're trying to think of the verse reference of those verses, you will not find it because those are not verses. And he does say he loves you. Actually, the only actual scriptural quote that comes from Jesus is John 15, 12, which is, love one another as I have loved you. But if the plush Messiah doll wearing his heart on his sleeve is a little too touchy-feely for you, they also make a Moses doll complete with unbreakable tablets and who orates the Ten Commandments. Isn't that funny? Now, don't get me wrong. I want to introduce Jesus to children. But I, we want to make sure that we are introducing the proper Jesus to children. And I, I think the doll that we see here is kind of a reflection of what we have done to Jesus in our country in particular. We've domesticated him. We've made him soft and cuddly. And any time that we want to hear something good or something positive, we just press his little belly, and there he goes. And he says some things that are going to make us feel good about ourselves. We make Jesus non-threatening, non-demanding, turning him into a dreadlock hippie, that we are okay with what he says. When I looked at this passage today, I talked to a good friend of mine, and we were talking over this passage, and what he said to me hit me like a ton of bricks. Jesus is talking to the public here, the public this is a public discourse, and Jesus is talking to potential disciples. These people have not made their minds up about Jesus Christ. They're wondering, oh, is this guy, are we going to follow him? I'm not too sure about him. You know, we're going to check him out some more. He feeds us. It's kind of fun. He does some wonderful miracles. But these are potential disciples, and these are superficial followers, these are people who are following Jesus just because it's fun, just because it's exciting, just because he is feeding them. And 
Jesus intentionally teaches them the truth here in order to separate them from the true disciples. This is Jesus' methodology. In order to discern between true disciples and false disciples, Jesus Christ just feeds them the truth. He feeds them a meal that is really hard to digest. And you see, we don't want to do that sometimes. And when I, I want us to learn a couple things from this passage. Number one, we have to understand that there are certain responses to the teachings of Jesus. And we're going to look at those responses, but also that we have to be careful about the methodologies that we have. Because Jesus' methodology is this. And we tend to go in the opposite direction. We don't want to lose anybody, so we fail to preach the truth. Jesus does the opposite. He wants his supposed followers to know exactly who he is and what he is going to do. His person and his work. He also wants them to know who they are and what they are incapable of doing and what they need to do. It's not very popular. Jesus' teaching is designed to divide. So we're going to look at three three responses today. The first response that I see here in this passage, the response to Jesus' teaching that happened here and still happens today is people grumble. Verses 41 through 51. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they, sh- they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I tells uh, some statistics about the average churchgoer. He says the average churchgoer is largely unfamiliar with Christian speech and Christian doctrine. People may arrive on Sunday morning without a fundamental working knowledge of Christianity. And that's okay, as long as the church continues to teach them that knowledge, to teach them that doctrine. He said they hear our words without certain assumptions of Scripture. He gives an example of a woman who recently complained to me, complained to him about the youth group that her 17-year-old daughter attends. He said the daughter had an issue with the teaching about the Trinity. I should send her over to Lily Barr's house. She'll set her straight. So they were teaching on the Trinity, and the girl, and the girl says this, the Trinity is an outdated concept. 
it's not in anymore. And the youth leader replied, well, and, and she also said that we don't need to think of God in such a complicated way. The youth leader replied, he said, well, that's incorrect. That's wrong. That's not the way that the Christian looks at it. What do you think the girl's, why do you think the girl's mom was offended? Because the youth leader said the daughter was incorrect. She was offended that this youth pastor had the nerve to tell her daughter that she was wrong. The pastor says to, him, to her, your daughter is extremely bright. She's gotten a huge scholarship to college of her choice, but she's ignorant and uninformed when it comes to basic Christian doctrine. As Christians, we are not here to say I agree or disagree with that. We're here to be instructed, to be enculturated into a very, very different way of looking at things. You see, when it's, it's hard to build a faith community, he says right now, because fickle congregations can teach us or tempt us in, can tempt us in two directions. They can make us pander to their consumer mindset. We may avoid the controversial, even if it's biblical, if we strive to make people feel good, designing the service so that they are pumped up at the end. Folks, Jesus does the exact opposite here. Jesus actually designs this service or this little teaching so that it separates and divides false disciples from true disciples. He does not avoid what is controversial in order to keep people following him. As a matter of fact, his teaching polarizes the crowd. His teaching is in the synagogue. It's in a public setting, as we are going to see later on. And in this discourse, he brings forth major doctrines. And he's not afraid to hit on them. So why are they upset? I'm sure you guys have, have been to a place or you've heard a speaker. Hopefully it hasn't happened here, but I, here, but I don't know what... What happens outside in the, in the foyer after a sermon. But you know, someone says something or maybe you've said something and you're like, I can't believe they just said that. Can you believe what are they talking about? That's crazy. Can you believe that Jesus just said that he is the bread that has come down from heaven? What does he mean? We know this guy. And that's exactly what is happening there. They're grumbling, and they're grumbling over a doctrine. What's the doctrine? It's the doctrine of the incarnation, and it is the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. And they're like, no, 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 no. We know you. And Jesus is like, no, you don't know me. And it's really, really funny here because the setting is very familiar to the Jews. As a matter of fact, Jesus knows his audience. These guys have grumbled before. They've murmured before. And it was in the context of the manna, of the bread. Why were they grumbling in Exodus 16, 2 through, two through 3? Well, because they were upset. Why were they upset? Well, they were slaves for many, many years. And Moses had the audacity, or God had the audacity, to free them. And free them from that slavery and pull them out of that slavery. But you know what? He didn't provide the food that they had in Egypt. So they were saying, hey, we wanted to go back to Egypt and eat those meals that we were eating. Same context as what Jesus is saying here. They were dissatisfied with it. They're not satisfied what Jesus is giving them. And now they are complaining and they are murmuring and they are grumbling against him. 
This grumbling, one commentator says, is not only insulting, but it is dangerous. And this is where it begins. We begin to whisper. We begin to murmur among ourselves and we say, I can't believe that Jesus said that. I'm not too sure about that. Is he really telling the truth here? And we can see where that leads. And what the problem is, is they think that they can understand divine revelation by just talking it out amongst themselves. Notice the word no. We do what? We know. We know this guy. We know where he's from. We know that he's the son of Joseph. How can he say that he is the bread that comes from heaven? How can he say that his origin is from heaven? And Jesus says, guess what? You don't know, and I'm going to tell you why you don't know. So usually at this point, right, if you're speaking up here and I'm looking at your faces right now, and if I say something that I think might offend you, and I didn't mean to say that, I'm going to do that little moonwalk. I'm going to walk it back. I'm going to be like, whoa, wait a second. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I see you're upset with that. That's not what I meant. I'm just kidding. That's a joke, right? Does Jesus walk it back? No. He goes one step further. Listen to what he says. He says you don't know because guess what? God hasn't taught you. And now, if and this is, so it's at this point in churches where the murmuring really begins. Can you believe that Jesus said we don't have any ability inside of ourselves to come to him? What is he talking about? This is where the grumbling starts, right? This is, can you believe Pastor Mark said that we are dead in our sins and trespasses and we can do absolutely nothing? I can't handle that. Here's where it starts. And I, I'm surprised they, he goes one step further. He just adds on to it. Remember, he's teaching in the synagogue. He's teaching like in a, in a church, in a church setting. And he's like, oh, no, no, you guys don't know me. You know why? Because God hasn't taught you because you can't come to me unless the Father draws to you, unless the Father draws you. What doctrine is he teaching here? He's teaching the doctrine of sovereignty of God in salvation but he's also teaching the doctrine of human depravity, isn't he? Do we have anything in ourselves? No. Now, how does that, now you're probably wondering, well, wait a second, Pastor Mark, because you know, I, I know I've heard you preach up here, you have to come to Jesus, you have to make that decision. Absolutely. It's like two ropes. You're just going to climb up both of them all the way up. How they intertwine, I have no idea. I'm okay to say that, but I'm going to emphasize what Jesus says here, and I'm also going to emphasize what he says later on, that you have to come to him. It's both. But here it is very, 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 very clear. There is nothing in us that wants to seek after God. As a matter of fact, Romans makes it even clearer, doesn't he? How many people seek after God? Zero. Nobody. How many people understand? Zero. Nobody. Do you know what Paul does in that passage? And he does it intentionally. He starts with the head and he goes down to the feet. From the head to the toe, man is totally depraved. We've got nothing. That's hard to hear, isn't it? And that is what, where people today are going to be like, I can't believe he just said that. I think there's some good in me. And I've had people tell me that. No, there's got to be something in me that can earn some sort of righteousness or do something for God. 
Jesus puts it in the negative and the positive, and again, he puts forth an unless, unless. Nobody comes to him unless the Father draws him, and I believe there is some wooing aspect to that, but really this word for draw, if we're going to stick to the Greek and stick to the text, it means to drag. It's the, yeah, I know, your face, and thank you, great expression, and that's what it is, that's kind of how we come to the Lord, no, no, don't, but it means to draw a sword or to pull forth a bucket from the well, and it means that the person who's being drawn is kind of unwilling, doesn't want to, but here, here, I want to add something, this is assurance of salvation, isn't it? Because it's the sovereignty of God, because those who come to him are those who he draws, are those who he raises, start to finish. You have nothing to worry about. That's eternal security. And that's his promise to you. I know we have problems sometimes in understanding this doctrine, and that's okay. I love this doctrine. Tell you why I love it. It's grace. This is what grace looks like. If it weren't for this doctrine, God didn't draw me unto himself, I wouldn't be standing here today. None of you would be sitting here today. It's a wonderful doctrine. It's a doctrine of comfort. And it's a doctrine of his love. Because when I was an enemy of him, and I was, unwilling, hating him, turning against him, fighting against him, he said, no, uh uh-uh. I'm going to have grace and mercy on you. I'm going to bring you into my kingdom and make you a part of my family. That's what this teaches. John Stott, referring to Thompson's poem of the Hound to Heaven says this. He said, according to Stott, he owes his faith in Christ not to his parents or to his teachers or even to his own decision. He owes it to Jesus. He says, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. If it were not for the gracious pursuit of the Hound to Heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Folks, disciples are learners. And disciples hang on every word of their master, don't they? They love it. And we grow in it. And we accept it. Murmuring and grumbling is never ever mentioned positively in Scripture. And murmuring and grumbling and complaining about the teachings of Jesus can be extremely dangerous to where it leads. Jesus doubles down here, doesn't he? He doubles down. He actually repeats what he just said. He doesn't back up and he says, I am the bread of heaven. And that bread you must eat of. And the bread that I offer is what? My flesh. And this just sets them, they become apoplectic at this point. And it causes them to stumble, verses 52 through 66. So Jesus goes into another very, very important doctrine, all in one discourse, all in a public setting, and now the people are going to absolutely lose it on him. 
So then the Jews began to argue. So now this tone is picked up. They're not just kind of whispering anymore. They are outright arguing over what he just said about giving his flesh. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as your fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending into where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I said to you, no one can come to me unless, the Father, unless it has been granted him from, by the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Pop singer Madonna, I'm sure you're all familiar with that name, has never shied away from controversy. Uh, during her 2006 Confessions World Tour, that continued as a trend. As part of the show, the 48-year-old entertainer staged a mock crucifixion, singing Live to Tell, all while wearing a crown of thorns and strapped to a mirrored cross. Not surprisingly, many religious groups protested a routine as an offense to their faith. Madonna answered her critics through a statement released the following, that, uh, the, following the tour's final show in Japan. She said this, There seems to be many misunderstand, a big misunderstanding about my appearance on the cross or misinterpretations. I wanted to kind of explain it for myself. It's no different than a person taking up a cross or wearing a cross. My performance is neither anti-Christian, sacrilegious, or blasphemous. Rather, she says this, it's a plea to the audience to encourage mankind to help one another and to see us, the world, as a unified whole. She later added, I believe in my heart. If Jesus Christ were alive today, he would be doing the same thing. Thankfully, we don't follow Madonna's theology, do we? It's interesting. Everybody has an interpretation of the cross and what it means. And the cross is an offense, but not as Madonna portrayed it. It's an offense, and it's a stumbling block for people. 
Madonna is completely wrong in the fact that the cross unifies. There's a unifying aspect to the cross, but it is only to those who receive and accept the sacrifice that was performed on it. Actually, it is the cross that divides the world in two. Those who partake in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and those who say, you know what, I'm okay. That's a little too difficult for me. The result of this teaching, combined with the other seals to deals for Jesus' superficial friends, they leave. They walk away. And it is the teaching of the cross today, it is the teaching of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that causes people to stumble. And there's a few aspects that we're going to be looking at and why they causes people to stumble. But I first want to say something here. I want to say what Jesus is not saying here. Because what has happened to this passage is it has actually been taken to institute a ritual that is the opposite of what Jesus wanted. There's a branch of Christianity that compares communion with the cross. And this is what they teach. Communion, or this service, is one in the same It is equal. It is equivalent to the sacrifice of that of the cross. Inasmuch as Christ, who has offered himself on the cross to his heavenly Father, continues to offer himself, continues to be sacrificed in an unbloody manner on the altar. Folks, this is an extremely dangerous teaching. This teaches exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. And we know what Jesus is saying is not to be taken literal because he qualifies it later, doesn't he? What does he say? It is the Spirit that gives life. Spirit, capital S, going back to the Father who draws those individuals. And now it's the Spirit who gives life. And the flesh, or works of the flesh, doing some sort of ritual, profits absolutely Nada. Nothing. And what has happened is we've taken this teaching. If there's any connection to communion here, it is a concept and it is secondary. The primary teaching is that we as disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are true disciples of Jesus Christ, must partake in his sacrifice in a personal, spiritual manner. And what's happened is we've taken this passage and we've used it to say if you partake in communion, you actually receive the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and you actually receive grace for your salvation. That is not what he's saying at all. Very, very, very dangerous. As I said, he qualifies later on that the flesh profits absolutely nothing and what I speak to you are words of spirit and life. The Jews got it wrong, and there are some today who get it wrong as well. He's referring to a spiritual meal. And again, he says that we absolutely must partake of it if we want to live. Do we see the connection that he makes here? Why is he making a connection to food? How many people ate this morning? People eat? A lot of eaters. I don't eat breakfast. Don't like I can't definitely can't eat before I preach, because then I get all, all messed up. But you ingest the food, right? You partake in the food. 
And that's the connection that he is making here. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ must be as real to us as it is to him in these verses. What does he say? He says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And the result of partaking in that meal is what? Real life. You cannot have real life unless we believe, unless we receive, unless we personally commit ourselves to that sacrifice. It must become as real to us as eating a meal. That's what he is saying here. And we know he's talking about his sacrifice because he says the flesh that I give, that I give this world. The bread that I give is my flesh for this world. So he gives it, and he gives it willingly. To say that he, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood would have infuriated them. Because drinking blood in the law was absolutely forbidden. And if you drank the blood, you were actually cut off from the people. Now Jesus is saying the opposite, isn't he? You absolutely must partake in my sacrifice. If not, you have no life. It is the centrality of the cross in the Christian faith. Here we see the cross and we see the commitment to the cross and we see the communion as a result of the cross. Folks, this is not some acknowledgement of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't hang on the cross to set an example for us. Jesus hung on the cross to save us from our sins because that is the sacrifice that was required and this is where it begins to offend people. When we look at the cross, we see the heinousness of our sins. We see what we deserved and where we deserve to be and people say, no, 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 that's way too much. I can't handle that. When we look at the cross, we see a God who required a blood sacrifice for sin, and people are like, I can't, I can't handle that. I can't handle a father who is going to allow their son to go through all of this, and they stumble and they walk away. People want a bloodless, sanitized Christianity. We want Jesus as a moral teacher and a God that does not require such a brutal solution to sin. We want a Jesus who will be our buddy and save us without any commitment or understanding of our need and what he has done for us on our part in that sacrifice. That's not Christianity, but that's what keeps the crowds. Notice Jesus separates flesh and blood. It's to remind us that that's actually what happened. His flesh was torn to pieces. And his blood flowed from his body. Why? Why did he do that? Was that unnecessary? Was that an example for us? He did that because that is the only way that you and I can truly live. We don't have life apart from that sacrifice. That's the gospel. 
That's, that's what this is all about. It's not about to make us feel good all the time. It's not about to build a huge church of all these crowds of people and everyone being happy and having fun. It's not about entertainment. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about God who took on flesh and gave that literal flesh in an awful, brutal sacrifice because he loved you and me. And that's the message that we need to tell this world because they are dying of starvation. And that's the message that we cannot water down for anybody. Notice what Jesus does here after this. You see how many doctrines Jesus covers every major doctrine of Christianity in one discourse. He begins with the virgin birth, the incarnation, the deity of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and then he goes right into the ascension. And he's like, does this upset you guys? What about this one? When they're like, that's it, we're done. He goes into whole, all of it, in a public setting, in a discourse, in a synagogue. All, all at once, and sometimes we're afraid to do this in the privacy of our own churches. Oh, I, don't, I can't cover all that in one day. That's way too much. Jesus is like, okay, well, if that doesn't offend you, how about this one? Boom. He just lays it out there. And they're probably like, oh, can you, Lord, can you, you know, as 12 are like, can you stop talking? You see the crowds? They're getting upset, Jesus. Can someone just tell them someone's here to see them? He goes through all of it, all of it, and the ascension assumes the resurrection, doesn't it? If he's ascending, guess what? And if he died and gave his flesh and blood, then he rose from the dead. You might as well just loop it all together in one half-hour sermon. That's what I just did, right? <laughs> See if we can follow suit. It's funny because we, we tend to avoid these things, and we tend to water down the truth and we tend, this is Jesus' methodology. He just, and if they don't understand, so the difficulty was not in understanding, it was in accepting. It wasn't in understanding, it's in accepting. Who can accept this? Who can deal with this level of commitment to Jesus? Do you see what he says, what he requires of us? Do you see how close that commitment is? It's like you're eating food, isn't it? And the result is an intimacy that he compares with the intimacy between he and the Father. And abiding with us. It's not just an acknowledgement. It's not just coming to church and be like, oh, Jesus is a nice guy. He's great. It's ingesting that. It's receiving it. The sifting that began earlier by challenging their motives is now complete by demanding their lives. And it reveals those who are true disciples, those who have received him, those that understand 
his sacrifice, now he abides and lives with them and with you. And you come to realize something. The same thing that Peter realizes here. That without Jesus Christ, there is no you. Leads us to our third and final response. They're humbled, so they either grumble, they stumble, they fall away, or they're humbled. Verses 67 through 71. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I, not my, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the, of the devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon, the, uh, Simon Iscariot, who, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. What happens here is kind of sad, isn't it? It's like those movies and you know the main character does something, whether good or bad, and has all these friends around, and he's talking to his friends, and he's like, hey, I understand if you guys want to go. You know, I, I get it. And some of the friends are probably like, yeah, you know what? It's just, ah, wish he didn't do that. But, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch. I'll see you around. Never heard from again. And then you have those other friends, and they're like, you know what? I don't care. Because I'm with you. I'm with you to the end of the road. That's the disciple of Jesus Christ. Ray Stedman does an interesting take on Peter's reply here, and I added some words to his take uh, for the context. He says this, first, Peter says, in effect, Lord, you know what? We've, we've been thinking about it. We've investigated the other alternatives. Even though you're not easy to live with, matter of fact, sometimes, Lord, you just outright embarrass us. You frighten us. I don't, we don't always understand you at times. We see and hear things. You do things that simply blow our minds. You offend people who we think are kind of important. We've looked at all the alternatives, but I want to tell you this. We've never found anyone like you. We've never found anyone who can do what you do. Where else are we going to go? We have no one. You have two things that hold us, Lord. Two things we can't deny. The first is your words. The words that you have said have met our deepest need. They've delivered us from our sins and freed us from our fears. Your words, O Lord, are the most remarkable words we have ever heard. They explain ourselves to us and they explain life to us. Your words, Lord, they satisfy us. Nobody ever speaks like you. Nobody understands life like you do. We're not going anywhere. Secondly, Lord, we've seen your character. Notice how Peter puts it here. We have what? Come to know. We've come to know you. 
The Jews thought they knew him. Peter knows him. We've come to see that you are the Holy One of God, that you are absolutely sinless. You have done absolutely nothing wrong. We come to see that you are the one who has fulfilled those prophecies. We come to see that you are the one who can give us life. We're not going anywhere. You are incomparable. There is no other alternative. Without you, we've got nothing. That's where the disciple comes to. That's the point. We look around, and before Jesus Christ, we thought we had it. We thought we had the answers. We thought we had life. And we've come to realize that there is absolutely nothing else except for him. The whole world can leave. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how offended people are, we know that Jesus Christ is life and has the words of life and you can't rip them from our hands. And you'll have to kill us. And that's only going to help us in the end. The words of Jesus Christ will draw some and they will repel others. That's what they're designed to do. To sift through it. When we look at this, we see the disciple of Christ realizes that there are no alternatives. The others walked away and what they walked away from was life. Why? Couldn't take what he had to say. They couldn't hear the truth. Jesus doesn't lower the bar, does he? He raises it. And it goes back to that doctrine that we thought of earlier. It's the doctrine that God is sovereign over all of this. That's why Peter can say this. We know this is a work of God because this is Peter. Peter is this crazy, independent, do-it-yourself fisherman, and he says this. <laughs> I can tell you the same thing about myself. You know it's a work of God because I'm standing here today. It had nothing to do with me. I didn't love Jesus like this. But I'm thankful he loved me first. We have to remind ourselves of this methodology and remind ourselves that the truth that people need to hear is the truth that Jesus says to us and not to be ashamed of that. So my question to you, oh, I'm sorry, I missed that. What's your response to the words of Jesus? What's your response Hopefully I didn't say anything that unnecessarily upset you today. Hopefully when you leave here, you're not going to be whispering in the hallways because I have really big ears and I can hear you. But it begins with a, a murmur, doesn't it? Ah, I can't believe he said that. Not too sure about that. And that murmuring builds up into an argument. And that argument says, you know what? 
way too much for me to handle. This Jesus guy just isn't for me. And you walk away. Don't do that. Because what Peter says is true. There's nowhere else you can go. There's nowhere else you can go. And though none may go with you now, he goes with you. Absolutely never alone. And if your response is that of Peter's, then my question to you is, what are you going to do with that truth? Because there's a bunch of people out in this world that are holding those Jesus cuddly dolls because they don't want to be offended. You need to take those dolls from their hands and give them the bread of life so that they may live forever. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how you teach us, Lord, and thank you how you raise the bar and you continue to challenge us. Lord, I pray that our response is the response of Peter's. Lord, and I pray that if that is our response, Lord, we go boldly into this world proclaiming this truth, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he suffered horrendously on a cross and that he suffered for the forgiveness of our sins and those who receive that sacrifice will live forever. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to do just that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.